We continue in our series in the book of Hebrews, and we're turning the page to chapter 4, chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. For those of you who are guests this morning, uh, generally we work our way through books of the Bible as they've been written, and we endeavor to understand what God has said in His Word. Uh, we believe that God wrote a book. It's composed of, of words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, and it's, it's good to study God's Word as He's given it. And that is the way he has endeavored to speak to his people. So uh, if you have a, a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, find Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 13 in just a couple of minutes. I want to establish a background here for those who may, may be new to the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, the author has been showing us, he's been writing to a church who's facing persecution for their faith in Christ growing, intensifying persecution, social pressure, uh, which is becoming the confiscation of their property. And over in chapter 12, we learn they haven't suffered death yet for their faith, but things are intensifying. It's getting harder and harder to be a believer. And so they are tempted to retreat from Christianity to some other kind of faith and say, well, as long as we have a faith, we're okay. And the author is saying, no, that's, that's not okay, because Jesus is God's final word to us. He's greater than the angels through whom the law was given. He's greater than Moses to whom the law was given. And now we're discovering that Jesus is greater than even Joshua because Joshua, while he took the Israelites into the Canaan land, they still did not get the eternal rest that God desired for them to have. And so he's showing us now that Jesus is greater than Joshua and how it is that we can enter into the rest of God. O'Brien, a commentator on Hebrews, says this, Our author's aim is to awaken a godly fear in his hearers so they will be aware of the seriousness of their situation and be moved to persevere. This notion of the rest of God is a difficult one to understand. You'll remember in the Ten Commandments, there's the law of Sabbath rest, that on Saturday you're not supposed to work, but you're supposed to rest, and it's a reminder of the need for humanity to, to rest and to enter into the rest of God. But in the New Testament, of all the Ten Commandments that are mentioned, nine out of ten are repeated in the New Testament with the exception of the law of Sabbath rest. Now, why is that? It's because Jesus is the Sabbath, right? We, we don't just rest on one day. We rest all the time in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no command to keep the Sabbath in the New Testament because Jesus is the Sabbath and we're to be in the Sabbath all the time. When God rested from his creative work on the seventh day, Adam and Eve had the opportunity to join God in his rest, that rest that you feel after a, a job well done. They could be there with their triune God in his rest, but instead they rejected the law of God, the command of God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and were cast out into the wilderness. And the only way back into the rest of God is through Jesus Christ. And so this morning we continue in this extended section that, that really comes from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, about how it is that we can enter into the rest of God. So with that as background, would you join me in hearing the word of God? Hebrews chapter 4, verses one through 13. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem 
to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that, enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Would you bow with me? God in heaven, there's a lot of content to cover this morning, but it is so essential that we get it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what you've said and God, that you would, through your Holy Spirit's presence, God, that you would apply it to our lives at at the place of our need. Lord, that you would give us liberty to want to respond to you this morning. God, that, that we would see that the fact that you've spoken to us and revealed yourself to us is an act of mercy and of grace. God, we we don't deserve to hear from you. We we certainly don't deserve to have the opportunity to be rescued by you. And God, to, to enjoy your rest, but you hold that opportunity out for us, and it comes by faith. Help us afresh this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This, uh, this text shows us three things, and uh, it's a quite a bit of content to cover, so I'm going to move briskly, and I'm going to ask you to listen quickly, all right? Three things that this text shows us. Those who enter into God's rest must enter in three ways. By way of genuine faith, we must enter with urgency and intentionality, and we must enter as those who are examined and exposed before God by God's Word. It's the Word of God that exposes us to God Himself. So first, we must enter God's rest. His heavenly rest by way of genuine faith. Chapter 3, do you remember how chapter 3 ended last week? It ends with the bodies of the Israelites strewn in the desert. That's not a happy ending to chapter 3. And so chapter 4, we should not be surprised, begins with these words, Therefore, let us fear. If the people were rescued from slavery, 
but they didn't make the promised land because they disobeyed and ended up strewn in the wilderness, therefore let us fear. Now, now some of you might be thinking, hold on, Pastor, I, I thought believing in Jesus brings the love of the Father into my life, and it does. And John says, there's no fear in love, that perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. But if we do not believe, we will be punished, and therefore we should fear if we don't actually believe. So this is a warning and admonition to actually believe. So where you believe in the Father and you're really trusting and following Him, there's not the fear of punishment. But if you don't believe, there is the fear of punishment. So for those of us who do believe, this is not a a fear of being punished by God, but rather it's a warning against presumptiveness towards God. The, The Christian life is complex in this way. We are called to love and to fear. We fear doing anything that would prevent us from honoring and enjoying the one we love. You love your mom or your dad or your grandmother or your grandfather. You don't want to do anything that would let them down or disappoint them. We fear undermining the one we love. The posture of those who have faith in Christ is one of reverence before God and making certain that our faith is genuine. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. True faith in Christ does not fear examining our faith in Christ. I keep on wanna just keep on checking in with Jesus. Am I really trusting Him or am I trusting myself? This is why verse 1 says, Be careful in case any one of you seem to have come short of it. Better to know that you have You are seeming to come short of saving faith in this life than to stand before God, our judge and maker, and discover that we really have come short of it and have no chance left. Schreiner says this, Fear does not mean paralyzing fear that leads to inaction. Rather, it's a fear that is a stimulus to action, like the fear that motivates a climber, a mountain climber, to ensure that all of his equipment is working properly. A mountain climber doesn't go to climb a mountain and say, I think I'm going to fall off this thing. But just because he doesn't think he's going to fall doesn't mean he doesn't check out his equipment. We should monitor our faith. True faith makes us simultaneously confident in the finished work of Jesus, but also committed to the task of making sure that our faith is actually in Jesus and in Jesus Christ alone. Otherwise, we risk coming up short of God's eternal rest. So how is it with you today? Is your confidence in Christ or some other thing? Are you trusting totally, wholly, completely in the finished work of Jesus at Calvary on your behalf? But pastor, I have heard this gospel message a million times. I know the gospel. Why do you just keep on preaching the gospel every single week? Jesus in my place, Jesus in my place, because our flesh wants to run away from Jesus in my place, and it wants to run to every lesser thing other than Jesus as a substitute, because if Jesus is in my place, then I owe my life to Jesus. The gospel needs to be more than just heard. It must be more than just internalized in our minds. It must be believed with the whole of who we are. Look at verse 2. The Israelites who fell in the wilderness heard the good news. That's what it says to us. But it did not profit them. There was no advantage to them. Why? Because you can't just hear the gospel. You've got to believe the gospel in order to benefit from 
the gospel. It does you no good to hear the story of the Israelites who were rescued from slavery, had the opportunity to enter the promised land, and failed. It does you no good to hear of that warning if you don't heed the warning. The end of verse 2 either means that the Israelites of the wilderness generation, there's a, there's a textual variant here uh, in, the, in the manuscripts that we have. It means one of two things. Either that the Israelites were not united with the good news by faith, or more likely that they were not united with the people who did believe. People like Joshua and Caleb because they did not have faith. But get this, church, in either reading, this is the point the author is making. When you really believe the message of the gospel, the message of the gospel overtakes you and you actually become a part of the message. You become a part of the evidence. When you trust in the gospel, you become a child of God. You begin to live differently, see the world differently, act differently. Your whole world is turned upside down when you're united with the message of the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, I don't have time this morning to go there, but it's really interesting to me that the author of Hebrews says that the Israelites, long before Christ came, heard the same gospel that we hear. Come to class on Wednesday night at 6.30, and we'll dive in on that question. In verse 3, the author gives another reminder that believing is essential. The logic of verse 3 goes like this. We who believe, if we actually are believing, we who believe enter into the rest of God. But those who hear the gospel and fail to believe do not enter God's rest, but they receive the wrath of God. And he's quoting from Psalm chapter 95, just as he was in chapter 3. In other words, we have two choices. You can have the rest of God or the wrath of God. There's no middle ground. That's all the, that's, those are the two options on the table. Believe and receive the rest of God. Fail to believe and receive the wrath of God. Then in verses 4 and 5, the author wants us to know that the Israelites really did have the opportunity to enter into the promised land, the land of God's rest. The possibility of belief and entrance into God's rest has been present Actually, from the foundation of the world, verse 3 tells us. The author proves this by quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, in verse 4, when he says, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The rest that God promises to those who believe in his Son has been available from the fall forward. Actually, before the fall. Before they fell, God entered his rest. And it's been available through faith in His Son ever since. This is a monumental statement. Because it clarifies for us what the author of Hebrews is talking about. The Old Testament talks about rest from our enemies, our human enemies, Deuteronomy 12.10. It talks about the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. It talks about the temple being built where the Ark of the Covenant had found its resting place on Mount Zion, Psalm 132 verse 8, but in verse 4, the author skips over all of those other foretastes and examples of rest, and he takes us all the way back to the seventh day of creation, back to the first rest of God, and he tells us that it is an eternal Sabbath rest that is available for those who trust in the Son. That is the rest that we can enter by faith in Jesus. In verse 5, 
The author quotes from Psalm 95, verse 11, one more time. It's the third time in two chapters. He says, they shall not enter my rest. Why in the world do we keep seeing this warning? Like, we heard you the first time. We heard you the second time. And the author's like, did you? It's, it's like with your children, right? Or your grandchildren. Sometimes you got to warn them, and then you got to warn them, and then you got to warn them. The, the repetition is not for us to get bored of it. It's to catch our attention and say, are you listening? Those who fail to believe in Christ the Son will not enter His rest. And rest from God is what we need. We cannot complete ourselves. We cannot undo what the curse has done in our lives. We cannot make ourselves whole. Only God, the Creator, who was able to rest after making the creation, can make you whole and restore you and make you new and give you the rest that you need. It takes the power of a creative God to give you rest. Augustine once said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Have you heard the gospel and believed and found rest? Do you know the rest of God in a restless world? If not, today is the day to run to Jesus and know God's rest. Secondly, we've got to enter God's rest with urgency and intentionality. Verses 6 through 11 again urge us, just like last week, to believe in Jesus while it is still today. Verse 7 today is the command. We are supposed to believe while we have the opportunity. We know this because David is writing in Psalm 95, reflecting back on the Israelites who did not enter the promised land. And he's telling, he's writing to people living in the promised land that they still need to enter the rest, which means just getting to the promised land was not the rest that God wanted for them. There was something bigger than getting into the land that God intends for his people. So many generations after the Israelites have gone into the promised land, David still says, we've got to enter into his rest while it is today. And this is because the rest of God doesn't come by getting to a piece of property. The rest of God comes by surrendering to a person, and his name is Jesus. Moeller says it this way, when the people of Israel journeyed across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, they did not journey into rest. They simply moved from one place to another. This is why the author in verse 8 can say that Joshua did not give God's ultimate rest to his people. There was a rest that remained for them. And what's interesting is in verse 9, he uses the word Sabbath rest as opposed to just rest. So he's been talking about rest, 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 rest. And then he, in verse 9, says, we want to move into the Sabbath rest of God. This is important because Sabbath rest is, again, a reference to that seventh day of creation when God ceased from his work, his creative work. Sabbath rest means festivity and joy expressed in worship and praise of God. It's like... I love to mow grass. I love to see every blade of grass submit to my lawnmower. And I love when I'm done and I've trimmed every last little thing and I can look out on my lawn and say, 
that's good. In fact, I'll be mowing strips. Sometimes I'll put a stripe in it on a diagonal. Sometimes I'll go back and forth and put a little weave on it. And I'll be mowing, and I'll be, I'll t- I'll be like, man, that's good. It is good. And do you remember what God said while he was creating the world? It's good. The satisfaction of a job well done is what God experienced on the seventh day, Father, Son, and Spirit. And He's inviting you into the satisfaction of belonging to Him by faith. The author says, Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. It's not something they enjoyed in the promised land. It's not something they enjoyed just because they read their Bible. It's something they enjoy by submission to Jesus Christ. And it's like God is inviting you to the best party ever. And the only thing that remains for you to do is to believe before the time is up. You've got to enter the rest of God through belief with urgency. We must enter verse 7 today. And if we do, the promise of Revelation 14, 13 is this. One day when we die or Christ returns, we will cease from our labors. Verse 10 says, we have rested from our works like God rested from His. Now there's, this is interesting, right? Because if we come to Christ, we have a lot of work to do. We, we don't do work to gain the favor of God. We do work because we have the favor of God, but there is a sense even in the here and now that when we come to Christ, we get to rest from our works. What in the world does that mean? Through faith in Jesus, we rest from our striving to justify ourselves because Jesus was enough. Because the rescue that we need comes not by what we can do for God, but by what God in Christ has done for me. He gave his life to redeem me so that I could have a soul at rest. In other words, if you've truly entered in and partaken of the rest of God, you're going to stop trying to earn your way to the party and start enjoying the fact that your name is already on the list. Moeller says this way, we no longer have to live our lives trying to prove our righteousness before God. Instead, we rest from that labor because Christ has already proved His righteousness on our behalf. To believe and enter the rest of God is to start believing in Jesus and stop believing in our ability to achieve the rest that our souls seek. And when you finally understand this, there's an irony that we find in verse 11. When you really understand that you can rest from trying to justify yourself, then look at verse 11. You will be diligent to enter that rest. Now hold on a second. Verse 10 said, I'm going to stop working. And verse 11 said, I'm going to start working. What in the world is going on here? The the word diligent means to hurry or to hasten or to make every effort. It communicates intentionality. So when we really rest from trusting in ourselves, we will really work at and be intentional about our walk with Christ. In other words, church, you've got to work at resting. We've got to work hard at getting rid of the idea. Are you all here this morning? This is good. This is good stuff. It, when you come to Christ, you've got to work hard 
at getting rid of the idea that working hard will work in the place of resting in the finished work of Christ. It takes a lot of work. We've got a daily work against our fleshly tendency to think that we can justify ourselves so that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. The goal of Jesus' death and resurrection is that we would know God's rest and that us, we, together, would strive to enter that rest by encouraging one another to be fully satisfied in Jesus and in Jesus alone, lest we fail to enter His rest. Why do we come Sunday after Sunday and magnify the name of Jesus rather than magnifying ourselves? Because Jesus is the one who did the work, and it is in Jesus that we rest. This morning... Are you resting in Jesus? Is your confidence in Christ and in Christ alone? Have you found rest in Him and are you working diligently to enter His eternal rest? Finally, we've got to enter God's rest as those who are examined and exposed before God by God's Word. Well, how do I know where I'm falling short of God's rest? How do I know where my life does not align with what God would want me to do? It's got to be examined by the Word of God. Verse 12 and 13, the author shows us that striving to enter God's rest is a response to the work of God's Word in our lives. Do you see that little word for to begin verse 12? Everything I just said is predicated on what God's Word is showing me about my life. How do I know where I need to work to trust Christ more? I'm constantly submitting my life to the Word of God. This is critical. The gospel that leads us to believe in Jesus is the gospel that keeps on revealing our need for Jesus. Did y'all catch that? The gospel that leads us to believe in Jesus is the same gospel that keeps revealing our need for Jesus. The Word of God is not like any other book that has been written. It is, look at verse 12, it is living and active. By living, he means that God's Word examines our lives. God's Word is also active. The Word means to be effective or to have power. God's Word is living and powerfully effective at exposing our tendency to deny our dependence upon Jesus. When we come to God's Word with a posture of submission and humility, this means we are not just reading God's Word, but God's Word is reading us. When we come to the Bible, it's like going to a master spiritual radiologist and a master spiritual surgeon at the same time. When you go to the doctor, why do you go to the doctor? Something's wrong, usually. I remember when I broke my wrist, when Samuel was just four weeks old, went to the radiologist, and I really wanted my left wrist not to be broken so I could continue to help my bride at a critical time. He wasn't eating well. Crazy stuff was going on in his life. And I was trying to convince myself That it wasn't broken. I had it on the table and I'm like, I can kind of move it. And I got in there with the person who told me to do things I had never conceived of doing with my wrist before. And by about the time I convinced myself my wrist was not broken and they asked me to do that. And I thought I was going to start screaming. I was like, well, maybe it is broken. But how did I know that it was broken? They took a picture. 
the Bible takes a picture of your heart. It's like a spiritual x-ray machine or maybe like an MRI with dye contrast. Now, how crazy would it be to be to come to God's Word and to get a diagnosis and to run away from it? But so often, that's what we want to do. It exposes where we're depending on ourselves rather than Christ. It will expose bitterness in your life, anger, resentment, insubordination, gossip, greed, unfaithfulness, covetousness, jealousy, clickishness, impatience. It will expose a host of other problems in your heart that all flow from a failure to really believe God. But praise God, unlike over at Carillion, you don't have to wait for a year to get a remedy to your problem. You don't have to schedule a meeting. The same Spirit of God that saved you and continues to expose you through the Word of God will begin to perform surgery in your life through the Word of God. Do you see that? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is. That means it's sharper than the sharpest sword. It's sharpened on both sides, which means from any direction. Have any of you ever done that? You've been sitting in a sermon? You were cool, everything was good, and then the pastor said something based on the Word of God, and it just cuts you to the core. I hadn't even thought about that, God. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Heal me. From any direction, God's Word can invade the totality of our lives. Look again at verse 12. God's Word pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Wow. O'Brien summarizes the surgical precision of God's Word this way. The Word of God is so sharp that it penetrates into the closest spaces and finds the most subtle divisions of the human being. Moeller says this, Scripture untangles the human heart and it unearths sin like no other book can. The Word of God is effective both psychologically, soul and spirit, and physically, joints and marrow in all matters that flow from our hearts. There's not one matter in your life to which God's Word does not speak and over which God's Word does not have the authority to powerfully cut deep in and expose sin and then restore you to trust in Christ. Health and life and vitality in Jesus. To become like Jesus, the eternal word, we've got to continually submit our lives to be examined by the Bible, God's written word. In verse 13, we find that the word of God lays us open. It exposes us. It shows us for who we truly are. I don't know if you have ever had a moment in your life where you felt exposed, but for me it was in the sixth grade. We had a school event, they were playing music, and we were dancing, and I was wearing some hand-me-down shoes with some real slick bottoms, dress shoes, and I decided to do the funky chicken, and a circle gathered around me, and we were having a good time, and they were all laughing, and I loved the attention, ha, 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 and then those slick bottom shoes went out from under me, and I fell in a funky chicken pile of embarrassment. And I'll never forget that moment. I felt exposed. I felt embarrassed. God's word will show you where you're parading about 
trying to call attention to yourself rather than living for the glory of the one who brings you to the dance. It'll open you up. And it'll lay you bare. The word laid bare comes from a word that was used in wrestling to describe when an opponent was taken down by his neck and rendered completely defenseless. O'Brien says this, The penetrating power of God's word renders every creature totally exposed and defenseless in the presence of God to whom all must render an account of their lives. And the verdict of God's word is this, In every area of our life, we are totally defenseless before a holy God. But when we realize this, we have two options. We will either fall upon God's mercies and trust Jesus all the more as our defense, or we will try to cover up our sin and our shame, and we will try to run away and hide from God. And maybe this morning, that's where you've been. Maybe there's something that even today that God's Word has dug down into your heart and He's exposed as an area where you're trusting in yourself rather than in Christ. Don't run away and hide. How foolish is it to run away and hide from a holy God who sees everything? Do you remember? This reminds me of Adam and Eve. They sin and they try to cover themselves up and to hide. And how are they exposed? Do you remember? Three words God asks in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Where are you? Where are you? And then the confession comes rolling out. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you? Are you being regularly exposed to the word of God? Have you come to the end of yourself? Are you desperate for the mercies of God? Then believe the promise of Scripture that if you run to Jesus, you will find God's rest while it is still called today. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, we are more desperate for you than we understand or comprehend. We thank you, God, that through faith in Jesus, even those areas yet, that have not been exposed, that you will expose them and that you will help us and you will heal us and you will cause us to look even more like Christ. So God, I I don't know what's going on in individual lives this morning. I, I, I don't know in this body what work you might want to do by your word, but I trust that your word is living and active and that it powerfully exposes us and lays us bare so that we might come humbly to the feet of Jesus once more. God, I pray you would give us the liberty to respond to you this morning, however you lead. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.